This is the AI Health Podcast, where we explore the ways in which AI will transform healthcare, biotech, and medicine through conversations with entrepreneurs, investors, and scientists. Hey, I'm your co-host Pranav Rajpurkar. And I'm Adrielle Saporta. And you're listening to the AI Health Podcast. Today, we'll be talking about clinical trial protocols and some of the recent excitement around updating clinical trial protocols with artificial intelligence in mind. Great. Let's talk about it. Shall we start by talking about what clinical trial protocols are? Absolutely. So clinical investigations often begin with the development of a clinical protocol. This protocol is a document that describes how the clinical trial will be conducted, which includes the objective design, methodology, statistical considerations, and ensures the safety of the trial subjects and the integrity of the data that is being collected. And who's the clinical trial protocol for? So it'll be used by any external reviewer who's evaluating the study, including journal editors, regulatory bodies, and institutional review boards. Got it. So it's a sort of shared reference point that keeps everybody honest, a way of saying, this is what we plan to do, help keep us accountable and make sure that we actually do what we set out to do. And also, once their experiments have actually been completed, it's important for researchers to make sure that enough information about the study was included in the final report so that external reviewers can properly evaluate and sometimes even replicate their work. That's right. Now, unfortunately, though, research can run into two issues. First of all, there's quite a bit of variability in the quality and the completeness of published trial protocols. And second of all, the methods section of published research is often inadequate for others to properly evaluate and reproduce experiments. Got it. So if a paper doesn't mention, say, how treatments were allocated to trial participants, it would be hard for me or for anyone else to figure out the extent to which bias was avoided in that study. Right. Now, two sets of guidelines were published that specifically outline what information both clinical trial protocols and clinical trial reports should contain. So for clinical trial protocols, SPIRIT was first published in 2013 and is widely endorsed as an international standard for the minimum amount of reporting that clinical trial protocols should have. For reporting of clinical trials, CONSORT was first introduced in 1996 and then updated in 2010, and it's endorsed as an international standard for the minimum amount of information that should be reported for clinical trials. So SPIRIT and CONSORT are basically two checklists that help guide researchers when they're putting together clinical trial protocols and reports. You got it. Okay, so... It sounds like the medical community has these great high standards for safety and efficacy when it comes to medical research. But AI creates a whole new set of challenges and minimum requirements for medical research. That's right. And that actually brings us to our two guests today, Dr. Alistair Deniston and Dr. Xiao Liu, who led AI-specific extensions of the SPIRT and CONSORT guidelines. These AI-specific extensions, Spirit AI and Concert AI, very much go hand-in-hand hand and were published in Nature Medicine, Lancet Digital Health, and the BMJ in September of last year. And the goal of Spirit AI and Concert AI is to improve the protocol and reporting of clinical trials for AI-based interventions. Can you give us some example suggestions from these guidelines? 
Both asked researchers to provide clear descriptions of the AI intervention, including the instructions and skills required to use the system, the setting in which AI intervention is to be integrated, the handling of inputs and outputs of the AI intervention, and an analysis of error cases, among other things. Another thing the guidelines ask researchers to do is to specify which version of the algorithm is used in the experiments. Like most software, AI systems undergo multiple iterations and updates in their lifespans, and the guidelines say that clinical trial protocols should state exactly which version of the AI system will be used in the clinical trial and should state whether this is the same version that was used in previous studies that have been used to justify the study rationale. Got it. Another example that they ask researchers to specify is how they handle missing input data. And when you say missing input data, you mean input data that may be of poor quality or unavailable. So for example, if an image in the data set had low resolution. Exactly. The guidelines say that researchers should specify if there was a minimum standard required, and if that standard was not achieved, then how was that handled? So the Spirit AI and Concert AI guidelines could help researchers conduct and evaluate medical research that incorporates AI technology and could even help medical AI products pass peer and regulatory reviews faster. Okay, I also want to ask you about the process through which the Spirit AI and Consort AI authors came up with these guidelines. My understanding is that they used what's called the Delphi technique. That's right. Okay, and so for our listeners, the Delphi technique is a commonly used way to establish consensus in a given subject area by surveying a panel of experts. So experts respond to several rounds of surveys, and then the responses are aggregated and shared with the group after each round. And so then the experts are encouraged to adjust their answer each round based on how they interpret the aggregated group response from the previous round. And so this kind of keeps going until a group decision or agreement has been reached. Cool. So in this case, there was a two-stage Delphi survey given to an international group of 103 people, including healthcare professionals, computer scientists, industry representatives, journal editors, policymakers, and patients. Then 31 of those people came together for a two-day consensus meeting that took place in January 2020 and was hosted by the University of Birmingham in the UK. I'm very excited to chat more about this with our guests, Dr. Alastair Deniston and Dr. Xiao Liu. Dr. Deniston is a consultant ophthalmologist and honorary professor at University Hospitals Birmingham and the Center for Regulatory Science and Innovation at the University of Birmingham. Dr. Xiao Liu is an ophthalmology resident and clinical researcher at the University of Birmingham and University Hospitals Birmingham. She's interested in clinical evaluation and implementation of digital health technologies, particularly machine learning algorithms to improve patient care. Thank you so much for having us. My name's Xiao Liu. I'm a ophthalmology specialty trainee or a resident here in Birmingham, UK. And I'm also a clinical researcher with the University of Birmingham. My research interests in this area has been around clinical validation of AI algorithms, mainly AI algorithms as diagnostic tests. So I'm Alistair Dennison. I'm an ophthalmologist working in University Hospitals Birmingham and an honorary professor at the University of Birmingham. And I lead a program 
of introducing digital health into the hospital and involved in the evaluation of digital health, including artificial intelligence systems into routine healthcare. And that bridges over to our research program that Xiao and I lead together, which is particularly looking at how can we best evaluate this systems. And that, that ranges right from the design of studies and the reporting of those studies through to the real world evaluation. That's fantastic. I want to talk about Spirit AI and Concert AI, but before we dive into that, I'd love to understand how long this has been in the works. Well, we first started thinking about the quality of evidence supporting AI within healthcare sometime around 2018. And we didn't start off knowing that we were going to work on reporting guidelines, but we published a systematic review in 2019, which was looking at the diagnostic accuracy of deep learning algorithms for medical imaging to diagnose any disease. And that was a huge piece of work at the time, looking at over 22,000 studies. And what we found was that only a really small percentage, less than 5% of those studies, were actually conducted with good enough methodology and clear enough reporting that we could be confident of the robustness of the results. And so, you know, we realized at the time that there's so much evidence being generated in this space and so many potentially really useful algorithms that could maybe improve healthcare, but we can't tell because the evidence is not good enough and the reporting is not good enough. And so that's what drove us to begin working on reporting guidelines, which this was an initiative that we announced in 2019, towards the later part. And we started gathering the community together to work on this. Now, I remember when your review paper came out in 2019, and the first thing I thought to myself was, wow, this must have been an incredible amount of work. And uh, it's fascinating that after doing all that work, you thought, we're going to do even more work and try to create a guideline for the whole community uh, to be able to follow. When you were doing this evaluation of these studies and finding that there wasn't enough evidence to compare different algorithms, what was the biggest shortcoming that you saw? So I think the biggest and possibly the most important shortcoming, well, maybe I'll, I'll give two. I think the most important one is that a lot of the studies weren't comparing to human performance. And that's what brought the sort of number of over 22,000 down to around 80 something. And could you maybe describe why that is important? Why we should have algorithms that compare to humans? Yeah. And, and actually, let me just clarify. So when I say compare to humans, I don't mean by basing the ground truth or the reference test on humans, but as in having a test set that's applied to the algorithm and then at the same time applied to a group of clinicians or healthcare professionals that would normally be doing that job. And the reason that's important is because in order to have relevance to the healthcare system as a whole, these algorithms need to be benchmarked against something that's used in real life. And so that's why we needed that information to be able to infer meaning from the performance of the algorithms. And is the idea there that when we have this comparison to humans, to healthcare professionals that are doing these tasks, then if these algorithms are better than the humans, then they're usable. Do you also think if these algorithms are worse than humans, then they're unusable? Or is there more subtlety to that question? 
Oh, that's a good question. Um, no, there are definitely subtleties. I think performance, the way we measure it, you know, if we're just looking at accuracy, it depends on the context. So better than humans, then great. Equivalent to humans still has great value. If it's worse than humans, well, it depends on what context you're going to apply it to and whether and how much worse, right? So if a clinician is reaching a diagnostic accuracy of, let's say, an AUC of 0.99, an algorithm that has an AUC of 0.98 is still really valuable. Maybe you implement it in a way that it triages before a clinician or something like that. Sorry, Alistair's about to say something. These are great questions and, and really speak to kind of why we felt this work was important to do. I think one of the things that we realized as we did that massive piece of work, which Shell led on, and you're right, it was a huge, huge amount of work going through those 22,500 studies. But one of the things was, it was obvious that the work, however brilliant it was, was actually coming out of a community that's not used to developing technology for health applications. And so I think there was a lot of fantastic computer science in there, but that it just wasn't designed in such a way that could be useful for evaluation for use in the real world. And that's fine if there's part of a pathway. And do you feel like the reason for that is that a lot of these studies are coming from people who haven't had exposure to the healthcare system? Or is it something that you feel like is just a byproduct of academia and research where the problem comes to an abstraction. It is no longer about patients in the real world. It's about a data set on which you want to achieve some kind of an AUC. So, so I, think, I think a bit of both. I think that's a fair point. But also I think it drew attention to the fact that we had a need and a duty as people who sit in the kind of applied health sphere to actually help share some of the learning and to help guide people along that pathway, which really led to the guidelines. It's, it's not about telling people, oh, you've done it wrong, but it's about starting to explore together as a community what good might look like. And to pick up on your last point with Xiao, is actually from any, every one of these studies, it may be that the AUC isn't better than human performance, but there might still be value there if we can understand where it's performing well and what the settings were, where it would be appropriate to use that. But conversely, a single AUC that is in some way meant to represent overall performance across the whole complexity of a diverse human population is probably not a very good indicator. And so there's a real need to drill down and just check around the inclusivity of that. You know, who is it not performing well in? Is there inadvertent discrimination here? Do we need to put safety mitigations in place? So it's massively complex. And that's what we're starting to explore now. So you guys published two sets of guidelines for clinical trials around AI, Spirit AI and Consort AI. And so before we dive into what each of those sets of guidelines are doing, can you maybe talk us through what the goal of guidelines are? So who's their audience? Is it other researchers? Is it regulatory bodies? Yeah, so it's, it's all of the above. We see guidelines as being of value to everybody in the chain from the earliest concept and design of a research study through the design and delivery of that study, through to the reporting of that study, through to the peer reviewers and journal editors who then have a structure to evaluate the study against, check that nothing's missing, as well as checking what has been done and whether it's done to standard. 
and I don't want to skip to the end, as it were, but we've found there's already a lot of pickup from regulators and so on. How do you know? How can you tell who's using it? Are they referencing you guys or can you see hits on your website? I know you have an interactive guideline online as well. Yes. Even on the first day our guidelines launched, there were citations because journals were mandating it. But Zhao, you've been keeping a track of the impact of the guidelines that are published. Yeah, so I mean, that's a really good point, because you can put a guideline out there that then no one uses and, you know, completely goes to waste. Our hope is that journals will use it to their advantage, as they have done with other reporting guidelines, such as those endorsed by the Equator Network. And what they normally do is at the point of submission, the journal will have in their instructions to authors that if your study design fits this criteria, then please refer to these guidelines. And the author would submit their manuscript along with the checklist, which says we addressed item X in paragraph X. And then the reviewers and the editors know that it's been done. Can you maybe talk a little bit about regulatory bodies as well? Are you seeing any kind of pickup from either the governments in the UK or in the US? Yeah, so we involved regulatory bodies in the consensus process. So we had representatives from the FDA, the EMA, the MHRA taking part in the consensus. And we had two of those. So a member from the FDA and MHRA as part of the working group. And Although they haven't formally endorsed, they have expressed their support for the guidelines and saying that they will help improve the quality of evidence for AI interventions. And yeah, that's been really exciting. So often that happens with, with regulators. They won't, it won't be an official endorsement as a body, but within but the team themselves will use them as standards, as a sort of shorthand for checking the quality of studies. And we've had take up at various national bodies within the UK as well. Some of the main governmental funded streams of research into AI and health now use them as a standard for evaluating clinical trials in the space. So it's been exciting to see them being picked up by journals and regulators and so on. Okay, so let's launch into them. We have Spirit AI and Consort AI. What's the difference between the two sets of guidelines? So Spirit AI builds upon a, a checklist called Spirit, which was first published in 2013, and that's for how you report a clinical trial protocol. So you would do, this is what we're going to do in the trial paper. And then Consort AI builds upon a really well-known uh, reporting guideline called Consort. The latest version was published in 2010, and that is the guidance for how you report a clinical trial report. So i.e. this is what we did in the trial. Now I want to ask about the, the process of going about developing these guidelines. Could you talk a little bit about the method you use? Because I think it's fascinating to go about making this determination and the whole process behind the determination itself. Yeah, there is a structured sort of a methodology behind this consensus process. And in fact, the Equator Network, which is the kind of international umbrella collaboration, really, for improving reporting of studies, they host many of these or rather they kind of provide the portal for many of these guidelines. And they have a methodology for how you go about developing a new set of guidelines or a guideline extension to be more accurate to what these are. And so you first generate a list of candidate items, which 
are usually informed by the literature. So we had looked at existing registered and public, published trials for AI interventions. And you might also do an expert survey, which is again what we did to seek out important issues that might go into the guidelines. And then you go through a sort of staged Delphi consensus process where um, you present these items, you ask for votes in terms of inclusion or exclusion. We also allowed participants to suggest brand new items. And then we went through two rounds of that. And then we met in a face-to-face consensus meeting in January 2020 to finalise the items that would be included. And then there was a piloting phase where we did all the wordsmithing and making sure it was clear and understandable. And how do these first two rounds work where you have these people, are they research scientists? What kind of people are these who are doing these surveys? So this is a really broad group of people. So we had patients, practitioners, so people who use these systems or might use these systems in the future. We had researchers ranging right across the spectrum from hardcore machine learners to hardcore practical clinical trialists. We had journal editors. We had six of the leading journals in the world represented by senior editors there. We had the regulators there. We had commissioners and people who who make the policy decisions around paying for these kind of devices. We also had some of the industry leaders, but that was a fairly small group. We felt that it was important that that voice was there, but wasn't the kind of dominant voice in the room. And one of the learnings for me was just how valuable it was having the patient voice here. Because of course, in health, this is why we do it. And to have them represented in those decisions. So really broad range of people. And that stayed right the way through from the Delphi process the repeated rounds, which was done remotely, electronically, to the face-to-face consensus meeting. We had the same representation basically across that process. And I want to understand this process before the face-to-face happened. So everyone's doing the survey. Do they get to see each other's answers or are they independently doing this? So in the first round, it's completely independent. And then the way Delphi process works is that you then in the subsequent rounds get the benefits of seeing what the kind of consensus or the general view is, the distribution of view from the group. But the reason why it's quite powerful is that you don't get told, oh, this person's voted for this or this and so on. The idea is that you're not swayed too much by, oh, well, this person's a really big name in the field. So, you know, they must be right. So it's very democratic in that way. So there is a consensus process so you can learn and be influenced by what other people are saying, but it's not too dominated by just a few voices. Now, imagine when you have so many different types of stakeholders, many with just different backgrounds and different trainings and ways of thinking. There are going to be things, I imagine, that uh, is hard to find agreement on. Did you find any particular parts of the trial guidelines of, of the checklist that you found to be there? two or more schools of thought that were very difficult, at least in the first round, to find some sync between? So I'll start off just with one point of interest, which was that we found that there were some things that came through to the consensus group meeting where the benefit of having a face-to-face conversation where everybody could hear from each other and hear those very different perspectives 
was really helpful, which you couldn't quite get from a, you know, an online voting sort of the rounds. I think having that face-to-face -face consensus meeting was really important. I think that was a very rich conversation, you know, including some arguments, and that was very appropriate. But actually being able to share and explain, well, I think this because that clearly changed people's views. So it wasn't just an averaging out of views. It was an actual genuine exploration and greater understanding at the end of it. I mean, there were a few interesting things that came up, not all of which were considered to be in scope, but the usual topical one of what's the publicly public availableness of the code? How open are we going to be about that? And also kind of who, who was sponsoring the study? There were some issues around kind of transparency. I guess the other one that we struggled with was around continuously evolving algorithms. We talked about it. In fact, we reserved an entire afternoon to talk about it and we discussed it at length. But in the end, it was excluded from the current checklist and we will no doubt have to revisit this again. But it was just felt that there weren't enough tangible examples in existence currently where we could base the item off. What fascinated me about when you were doing this consensus process was even at that point, there was this very small limited number of AI clinical trials. Is that right? It was under under 10? Yeah, that's exactly right. So I think the exact number was seven at the point at which we generated the candidate items. And even now, when you look at randomized trials, I think it may be slightly above 10 now, but it's still within that region. I do feel like in today's world in which a lot of the way that we communicate even before COVID is just sort of opinion pieces on the internet or ranting on Twitter. It's actually a very unique scenario to get everyone together in one room and just talk like civil human beings about what might be the best way to move forward from here. I'm curious, how many people are we talking about here during this weekend? So on the consensus meeting, in terms of voting, there was 31, but there were additional observers. So quite a few of the steering group, quite a few of us sat out from voting, but were kind of facilitating and had contributed previously. But yeah, no, it was, it was very good. And I mean, just to say that often what happens with these reporting guideline groups or, or working groups is that they'll meet again even before the reporting guideline is updated. I mean, no, number one is that they are often updated and particularly in this area where the developments are happening so quickly, we'll almost certainly need to update um, and revisit things within the next year or two, maybe even. But often we'll meet again to use the group as a kind of collective of brains that um, understand this area to tackle the difficult problems uh, within AI for health. And uh, one of the joys of it was not just the kind of formal proceedings, but the in-between times where people were just having coffee, etc. and say, you know, when you did that paper, I don't get why you did that. Or, you know, I think you really should have done X, Y, Z. So I think there was a, a richness in, in the learning around that as well. And are you guys just sitting in one big room, all 30 or 50 of you? And like, how do you moderate a conversation like that? Yeah, yeah. so it was, it was literally that. So everybody was very well behaved, actually. I have to say that it was, <laughs> I mean, it was quite high stakes, but it was one of the easier meetings that we've chaired because people were really respectful. I think they would have been anyway. But my other observation is that 
most of the meetings like this, which are multi-stakeholder, where there's potentially quite a lot of vested interests, but actually if you agree around the same North Star, as we say, that kind of same principle of why are we here and who's this for, and it's, it's not for us to stake a claim, it's around trying to bring benefit back to patients. And having patients in the room as well, was a really brilliant moderating influence. I, as I say, I think the people were fantastic and really respectful of each other anyway, but I, I just think that it really helped. How did you choose which patients to sit in the room? Were they just people who were ill or just a random Joe Schmo from the street? Yeah, I mean, it, these things do tend to be a bit random, but if I think of the, of the three patient representatives who were there in the final consensus stage, one of them, Elaine, has written about her experience. Uh, that was published in Nature Medicine at the same time as the main guidelines came out. And she actually has personal lived experience of being involved in a study developing retinal diagnostics. So she was part of the study led by Pierce Keen between Moorfields and DeepMind team. And so she's been a great advocate, but also she's one of the few patients in the world who's actually been a directly involved in a study and then had live demos of the algorithm demonstrating it actually working, scanning her eyes. There was another patient who's just been involved in digital health generally and a, another patient who by background is an engineer and is really interested in patient reported outcomes and the application technology. It's only three patients, you know, out of a population of seven billion people, but it, it was really powerful to have their voices there. I want to dive into some of the specifics in the concert AI and the spirit AI guidelines. Maybe if you could walk us through a couple of your favorite sections uh, in either of those guidelines that you were particularly fond of how they ended up. Let me think. So we start off by asking authors to specify that the intervention has a machine learning or an AI component. We ask them to define what the intended use is and put that in the context of the clinical pathway. There are quite a few items in the methods section of both checklists, which is around describing the health intervention, the AI intervention, in enough detail that somebody else can essentially replicate it. So describing what the input data is, how they handle the input data before it gets consumed by the algorithm, what the output side is like, what the human AI interaction is like. There's an item around discussing algorithmic errors or failure cases of the algorithm and interrogating for sort of systematic failure modes and what the risk mitigation strategies are. So that's more around safety. So yeah, it's hard to pick a favorite, but I think, well, we can each give our favorites, but my personal favorites are the ones around describing the input data are really, really important. And I think the one around analysis of errors is also very important. That's, that's slightly depressing because my top two are the same two. But I think appreciating that these systems are not going to be in isolation. And that's what that description of the input data is really important around that that so often when you see these studies, it's kind of best case scenario. It's like perfect patients with perfect data going into a system and all the focus is on the performance 
of that kind of black box AI system. And that's just not how it's going to pan out in the real world. So I think that's really important. And then the other thing is, is as Zhao said, is around how we uh, report safety and what that's going to look like going forward. And although the, the kind of item addressing that doesn't sort of mandate exactly how that should be. Again, that's an area of real interest to us going forward, because we think there's a lot of work that could be done around that, and that could enable safer deployment and probably earlier deployment if you have a good safety strategy around that. Now imagine some of these items, although the guideline extension themselves are for clinical trials reporting, could also be used earlier in validation studies if someone just has a training and a validation cohort so how do you think about setting this up such that that was also a possibility? And of course, is my assumption in that that is a possibility. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Well, when the candidate items were generated, they were focused on clinical trial stage. But exactly as you say, some of these concepts around describing input data, it's a no-brainer that that's something that's important throughout the entire validation process, even post-deployment. So, yeah, so, so some of them are universal concepts, and I think that's great. Um, so Alistair and I are also involved with um, some upcoming initiatives. One of them is STARD AI, which is AI reporting guidelines for diagnostic accuracy studies. And there is another um, reporting guidelines for prediction modeling coming up called Tripod AI as well. And the three groups are working together to align some of these concepts so that they do become just accepted as good practice, no matter what your study design is. That's fascinating. You've designed these guidelines with the idea that these are going to be used going forward. And when you talked about these, there were only seven clinical trials that were existing at the time. How soon do you think you'll have to get the group back together to design the, the next iteration of these guideline extensions? I mean, the group is working together on a number of parallel initiatives anyway. And I think we will be in regular enough contact that as new things emerge, we will revisit it as and when needed. So it may be a year, it may be 18 months, but I think it will definitely be within the next two years. And whenever COVID lets you guys maybe get together in person. Yeah, or we'll do it virtually. We're all very good at virtual meetings now, right? <laughs> I'm curious of these few sort of favorite components to the guidelines, maybe input data, human interaction, and uh, an analysis of errors. Were there any disagreements that you can share with us? Well, I think the um, most challenging time for Joe and I was the very first session, which was around description of the title and the terminology, and indeed whether it should be Spirit ML and Consult ML or Spirit AI and Consult AI. Wow. Yeah, this was something we'd wrestled with already quite a bit. And I think they're really good arguments for, for either because it, there's no doubt that the focus is particularly around ML rather than very traditional broad, you know, the, the broadest definition of AI. But we did feel that particularly in the clinical trial space, there was a real need to have something that was recognizable to people who perhaps aren't computer scientists and so on. So that's why we recommended going with AI as a suffix. And that was indeed what the group voted for. But that was a, that was a rich discussion, as you might imagine. Hmm. So those, that was some of the more challenging. So it was, it was all very good natured, but it was actually really quite difficult as an opening session. So I think we got to like about item one by lunchtime and we were thinking we've only got two days to 
nail the other 30 items or whatever, but it's sped up after that. There was a particularly exciting moment around the item for describing mis missing input data, because that was one where we had to revote. I think initially, maybe we finished the discussion maybe a bit prematurely, but we voted and it didn't quite pass the threshold and there was sort of outrage <laughs> from some of the candidates, some of the participants in the room that that was a really important item to include. And so we re revisited that with further discussion and on the revote actually, the whole group voted very favorably for including. Yeah, and that, that was an interesting one because what we did there is is sometimes if that happens and it's challenged straight away, there's a, there's a danger that it's not as measured a response. So we actually tabled it for a bit, had further debates, came back to it. And so it was kind of revoted on in the cold light of day, as it were, with that new information. But you kind of know that things are working well. You know, it's a it's a proper consensus meeting if you're having good debate like that and people feel comfortable challenging. Definitely. If you can share, what was the disagreement around the input data? What was the specific sticking point? I, th I think there was some discussion around whether missing data is a generic concept for reporting of trials, whether it be AI or not AI. And the discussion after the first round of voting was actually that this is the one thing you can control in a prospective study. The kind of distribution of your input data makes such a big difference to whether your algorithm is working as expected or not, that this was considered a very important issue for AI specifically. I think that's a good point. I mean, one of the things is that these extensions build on existing good practice guidelines. What we didn't seek out to do was to start completely from scratch and say, right, if you're going to design a clinical trial of an AI intervention from a blank piece of paper, what would you put in? We need to recognize there's a fantastic body of work that's already gone into saying, what does a good clinical trial look like? And so the purpose is around taking that framework and saying, okay, what's not covered? Or what is covered but needs to be explained or elaborated in some way so that it's now fit for purpose for an AI intervention. And so sometimes the challenge back to the group was saying, yeah, 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 we see this important. We see why you've listed it, but actually we think it's covered already. And so making the case for actually, this is so important and there's something distinct about it here in an AI setting that might not be covered. So sometimes that's the debate. It's not saying it's not important, but it's, is it covered? or does it actually need to be called out separately? The final question I wanna ask both of you is um, around what you're most excited about over the next year or two in this field. You've already read through 22,000 papers. You've talked with a lot of the big researchers in the field. What do you identify as something that would be big in terms of how AI and healthcare is going to change in the next year? Well, I'm really excited about the number of prospective studies that we've started seeing where these algorithms are being deployed in real world clinical environments. I think there's still a lot of work to be done. I think we still need to figure out how we can start generating evidence about clinical effectiveness rather than relying solely on metrics like accuracy and start showing that these can improve patient outcomes. I think there's still a lot to work through in terms of fairness and bias and ethical issues within algorithms. 
My own personal interest, I think, in the short term is around safety and how we monitor for safety, how we carry out that post-deployment surveillance, and also how we upskill clinical people who perhaps haven't been as interested in this space, um, how we upskill them to be able to deliver that kind of safety monitoring. Yeah, and for me, I think you know, the reporting standards are focused on transparency and saying, right, these are the list of things that you should have thought about. They should be in your design, your delivery, and you should be reporting against them. But they're not really telling you what good looks like. So I'm really excited about actually getting towards what is best practice in this field and recognizing that we probably haven't even invented it yet. There's some things that we could sit down and get together and say, yeah, this is what good looks like. And there are other things that we just need to explore together as a community. And that includes the, you know, some areas that Xiao's leading on, like in safety, but it's a whole range of things. There'll be some innovative designs coming through. There's also the issue of, can we get beyond thinking of this as something replacing a human task within a system, but actually starting to augment that? You know, what does that look like? What is the ideal relationship around that? Zhao, Alastair, thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Well, it's our pleasure. And that's all, folks. A big thank you to Dr. Alistair Deniston and Dr. Xiao Liu for talking to us today. And thank you for listening. We're your hosts, Pranav and Adriel. And until next time, stay safe and stay healthy. The AI Health Podcast is produced and edited by Oishi Banerjee. Music by Ethan A. Chi. If you like what you just heard, let a friend know. Subscribe to the show and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify or connect with us on Twitter at AI Health Podcast.